0: Today, I intended to give to you a state of the church address. And in a sense, that is what I'm going to do as we begin a new series on worship. When we look at the church as a whole, whether it is this local congregation we call Christ Fellowship, or whether it is the greater church across our nation and across the world, We must look at the church's worship to accurately gauge the true state of the church. I believe this with all of my being. And I believe also that we have become far too focused on what we personally get out of worship Instead of focusing on what is taking place through our worship. Your involvement in worship is not primarily about you. That is counter to what we have been taught in the church. It's counter to to everything about the church and about the church industry. You do realize the church industry is real. The church music industry, the church growth industry, the church building industry, the success of the church is very important to a lot of people, not because the church is the center of worship of our God, but because the church has become the center of much money and much profit for many And making your church experience personally appealing to you, whether you're here on Sunday morning or not, and throughout your week, is very important to their profit motive. And what it actually has done, it has taken us away from the true meaning of worship. And what I want to do in these series of messages that we're going to go through in the next few weeks I want to recenter us. I want to refocus us back to what the Scripture teaches us about worship, not what the worship industry or the church industry or man wants us to believe about worship or what you might even want to believe yourself about worship. So I'm going to say this again. Your involvement in worship is not primarily about you. It is about much more. Than you. Our worship is warfare. Therefore, our worship is vitally important in fulfilling the Lord's command concerning his church, his kingdom, and his world. Amen? Amen. Our text today is going to be John chapter 4. And I'm going to read to you, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse. 26, and this is the account of Jesus who engages with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered her and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands... And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, the very Spirit we are to worship you in, the very Spirit we worship you through, the very Spirit that fills us and makes us your children, we pray that you would, by your Spirit today, open our hearts and our minds, break down the paradigms that have been built up and erected in our minds, in our thinking about you and about worship, about us and about our relationship to you. Father, I pray that you would, by your word and by your spirit, teach us and reveal truth to us. And I ask, Father, that that truth revealed to us by your spirit would make us free. Free to worship you in spirit and in truth free to conduct the warfare of our worship week in and week out, day in and day out. Not just personally, but Lord, importantly, corporately, as your people, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that yearn to worship you. We ask this, Father, as your body, As your people assembled here today in worship for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. So this is going to be our text today and in the next few Sundays and we're going to center our discussion of worship around this text. I've read these 26 verses to you because I want you to have a context of what's happening here. I want to dispel some common myths, I think, about these verses and about what actually was taking place here. I think what is taking place here is much greater than what we have commonly come to believe is taking place here. So I'm going to go through these verses in kind of outline form. And I'm going to touch on these more from a, um, a macro level. We're not going to dive into um, the meaning of, of every word in all of these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going verse by verse. I'm going to give you an overview of these 26 verses today to kind of lay a foundation that's going to prepare us as we move forward in the weeks to come. So let's begin. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So I want to point out first of all when you read the Bible pay attention to the words that God inspires to be written there. You notice how John pins this, how he records this. Therefore when the Lord when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So as it was always with Jesus in his earthly ministry, because he is Jesus and because he is the Lord. And this is how John refers to him here. John calls him the Lord. But when John refers to the Lord in terms of how the Pharisees saw him, the Pharisees just They simply saw him as a man named Jesus who purported or pretended or imagined himself to be something more than just a man. John knew the truth, which is why John calls him the Lord. The Pharisees did not know the truth or what truth they knew they suppressed in unrighteousness because they did not want to call Jesus, who he actually was, which is the Lord. Amen. And so in that controversy stirring around Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, he leaves Judea and departs to Galilee. Now, if you, you might not know, but if you can envision a map. If you just envision your hand, Judea is down here you know, in the palm of your hand. And Galilee's going to be up here at your fingertips. And in between the center of your palm and the top of your fingertips, this middle section here, that was Samaria. And to get from Galilee, to get from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria or you had to cross the Jordan and go all the way around, which was a long ways, a long ways out of the way. Well, Jesus didn't just go through Samaria because it was the shorter way. The scripture says, John writes, that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Not just because it was shorter, but because there was a providential meeting with a Samaritan woman that Jesus knew of, but no one else did. Not even that woman. Many Jews of Jesus' day would not even travel through Samaria but go around and out of the way to avoid going through the region. Jesus went through Samaria because he needed to in order to fulfill God's plan and God's purpose for himself and for the Samaritans. John chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, set thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. This city was near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The recording of that, when Jacob gives this ground to Joseph, it's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 48, verses 21 through 22. You can mark that and go read it for yourself. John references this so that the reader will know exactly where he's speaking about, of. But it's more than just locating geography. geography. Jacob's well was also there, John tells us. Now, this is the only place in Scripture that identifies Jacob's well by name. It's found nowhere else. It was widely known and widely accepted during that time, during the time of Jesus, that this was the well dug by Jacob. As the woman says, Jacob himself drank out of it with his family and his livestock. This fits the historical record as Sychar, this Sumerian city, was very near or in the same location as the ancient city of Shechem. Shechem is an ancient biblical city that is mentioned numerous times in Scripture. It's it's mentioned a lot. I mean, you would have to think of names of cities like Jerusalem that were so often mentioned to think about how often Shechem is mentioned in the Scripture. Shechem has a rich history for God's people. It was to Shechem that Abram, not Abraham, but Abram, when he left Haran and entered the Promised Land, he first came to Shechem. And Abraham built an altar there to the Lord. It was at Shechem that Jacob first bought land when he came back to Canaan after serving his uncle Laban for 20 years. That's recorded for us in Genesis 33, 18 through 20. Shechem was the land Jacob promised to Joseph. John records this in his gospel. It was Shechem that Joseph's bones were ultimately buried, Joseph's was buried at Shechem. Remember, Joseph tells the children of Israel in Egypt, when I die and God delivers you out of Egypt, don't leave my bones here. Take my bones with you and bury them in the land that God has given to our people. And they did. And they buried those bones at Shechem. Shechem, being the place where Jacob bought his first parcel of land, upon entering Canaan would certainly be the place that Jacob dug his well to provide water for his family, his household, and his livestock. Thus it was known as the location of Jacob's well. So at the time that this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is taking place, we're 2,000 years on the other side of Jacob digging this well. That well, purportedly, is still there today, and you can go to it and visit it if you go to the Holy Land. Both Abram, now think about this, both Abram and Jacob chose Shechem as a place of rest. So did Jesus. It is with purpose that Jesus goes to Samaria, to Sychar, in the very region of ancient Shechem, to Jacob's well to find rest from his weary journey. Jesus was not only there to rest, but to make a point with his words and with his deeds. His very presence there at Jacob's well was significant for the history of God's people. And even more importantly for us. It is significant for us. It is significant for the future of God's people. Which means it's significant for us today. Because the very things that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. The very things that he taught her. That he, she didn't even realize he was teaching her. Are ours today. Because they have been revealed to us by the Lord. In his word, by his spirit, which is why we're reading this and we will study this in the weeks to come. It is the sixth hour of the day, John tells us. That is what we commonly call noontime. It is the part of the day when most people are not drawing water from wells. There was a reason why this Samaritan woman came at noon. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't accidental that Jesus was there waiting for her, knowing that she would show up, which no doubt was her custom. I believe it's safe to say. So she comes at noontime and finds Jesus resting at Jacob's well. As he is resting, he is no doubt waiting for her, for this was the reason he needed to go through Samaria. It was no chance meeting that Jesus had with this woman. Neither are the meetings you and I have with those we seem to encounter by chance. Don't say, oh, by chance, I met you today. No, you did not meet anyone by chance. There is no such thing as chance. There is God. There is His providence. There is is His sovereign working In ways we can't see, ways we can't perceive, ways we do not know until we find ourselves in the very encounters that God in his providence puts us right in the middle of. There is no such thing as chance. Jesus did not have a chance meeting with this woman at the well. Neither do you. It is God's divine appointments that we find ourselves encountering on a daily basis, whether we realize it or not. Jesus chose, here is how God works consistently. We went through Advent and we, we, we talked about the Shepherd song, how God announced the birth of his son, not to kings, not to world rulers, but to poor shepherds. And here again we see God at work in his typical way that is so untypical for man and the world that we live in. Jesus chose a poor Samaritan woman, not even a poor Jewish woman, but a poor Samaritan woman with a less than honorable reputation, no doubt, to make one of his most important theological points concerning worship. He could have chosen any place He could have chosen anyone. He could have gone to the great halls of learning with the rabbis and all of the men who thought so highly of themselves, so educated that they were educated beyond any good to any of the people around them. But he did not go to those places and to those people. He goes to Jacob's well in Samaria and waits for the poor Samaritan woman who comes to draw her water at noon because she doesn't want to have to encounter all of the gossips and all of the people who are typically there at the well. At least that's what I believe. He could have chosen any place, anyone to have this conversation with. But he chose Sychar in Samaria, and he chose this Samaritan woman. In John's gospel account, he records Jesus. Now think about this. The living word made flesh. In just a few chapters in John's gospel, Jesus will stand in the temple and declare himself the very living water that he's going to talk to this woman about. Jesus sitting and resting at Jacob's well in the land of promise. Here is the living word made flesh. The water of life, the bread of life, sitting and resting at Jacob's well. In the very land he has promised to his people. In fact, he is the very promise of the fruitful rest Israel was to enter into upon coming out of Egypt. And going into the promised land. Not only that, but he is also the complete fulfillment of all that the tabernacle and the temple ever foreshadowed in terms of God's relationship with his people in worship. It is this subject of worship that will be raised in the conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Jesus is sitting there at noontime, resting at the well. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, A Samaritan woman. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This shows us that the Samaritan woman is surprised by the request for a drink by Jesus. In fact, the way it is written here, Jesus didn't even ask for a drink. He said, give me a drink. Oh, think about how counter that is to the world's concept of Jesus. That is so nice, he looks past what God calls an abomination in his word. And loves people even though they hate him, reject him, and mock him. Yes, I know, Jesus loved us who hated him, rejected him, and mocked him. But what I'm saying is here... The Jesus the world wants you to believe the Bible presents to you is not the Jesus of the Bible. That Jesus would have gotten up and he would have drawn water and given that water to that poor Samaritan woman and then told her how sorry he felt for her because she had to come out here at noontime and draw water. But instead, Jesus sitting there says, somewhat arrogantly it sounds like to me, give me a drink. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't insensitivity. It wasn't Jesus not being nice. It was Jesus being Jesus. It was Jesus being who the Bible presents him to be. And we have no right to judge him otherwise. We have no right to impose our own thoughts, our own imaginations on who we think Jesus should be. We have no right to do that. In fact, we need to go back to the Word of God and we need to submit ourselves to who the Bible presents Jesus to be. That's what we have to do. And if we do not do that, we will stand in judgment for having suppressed the truth in unrighteousness one day. So here is this woman, surprised by the request for a drink of water. It was unusual for a Jew to even have a conversation with a Samaritan, much less ask for a drink of water. Jesus is the exception to most of the Jews who hated the Samaritans. Those Jews who wouldn't even walk through Samaria because they didn't want to get their feet unclean on that unclean land inhabited by that unclean people. Of course, Jesus is the exception because he is not a typical Jew with hatred in his heart for Samaritans. Jesus is there because he loves all who are his, including Samaritans. He's there for the specific purpose of having dealings with the Samaritans that he would die to save. She says, what are you doing asking me for a drink? You Jews have no dealings with us Samaritans. Well... Jesus does, not just to get water, but to give life. John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up to everlasting life. Now, not only is the woman surprised by the encounter with Jesus, but now he is speaking to her about giving her living water. He obviously has nothing to draw water with, and the woman is genuinely confused about what Jesus is talking about. But he has obviously also piqued her interest. He then describes this living water as a water that will keep one from ever thirsting again. This living water, Jesus tells her, will become in that person who drinks it a fountain of water, springing up to everlasting life. In other words, this living water that Jesus supplies will become a fountain of endless supply, springing up to everlasting life. If you were to go to this region of the Middle East today called Sychar doesn't exist anymore or Shechem that didn't exist even in the day that Jesus is here with the woman at the well. Shechem was long gone as a city. But the region its not just the city it's the region And this region is positioned in a valley between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And you can go to Google, it's amazing, we don't have to travel to the Middle East, we can just go to our computers and we can look at computer images of this region. And you'll notice very quickly that there is a strange um, uh, population of people and buildings and and greenery in this area between these two mountains. But when you, when, you, when you look out, when you zoom out, you'll see that there's a lot of wilderness everywhere else. And the reason is is because there's no water in those other places. Why did Abram come to Shechem? Because there was water there. Why did Jacob go to Shechem? Because there was water there. Why is there people there still today? Because there's water there. That well is still there. The water that supplied that well is still flowing today. The importance of water is lost on us until we have a freeze and then we don't have any more water. And we go to our faucets and turn them on or wave our hands in front of them, depending on what kind you have. And and nothing comes out. And then we all get in a tizzy. Oh, my gosh, we don't have any water. Well, I got five-gallon jugs sitting there full of water, but I don't have water that I can just, at my command, make come out of my faucet. You want to know why we have that? It's a one-word answer. Gospel. It's the gospel that's given us the water, even the water we drink today. Even the technology that brings the water to our very fingertips today. And we don't have to walk almost a mile carrying jars to fill by hand and then walk back almost a mile with heavy jars of water. We don't have to do that today because of the gospel. So water was important. An everlasting water a well that springs up, that does not end, that has an endless supply, was something that would pique anyone's interest. And it certainly did the Samaritan woman. So the woman says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. So Jesus not only had captured her attention, he has produced in her a thirst for living water, leading to everlasting life. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. She now asks Jesus to give her this living water so that she doesn't have to come any longer to draw water. She doesn't ask this because she's lazy. She doesn't even ask it, I believe, because she's ashamed, even though she goes at noontime. This is revealed by the next thing that Jesus says to her. Go call your husband and come here. Now, a lot of people believe this is the primary reason Jesus is at the well. To meet this one woman so he can uh, basically read her mail, like we used to say in the charismatic circles, and then she would uh, realize that he's the Messiah and she would trust in him and be saved. No doubt Jesus is going to save this woman, but I'm telling you, that's not the primary reason Jesus is there. The woman replies, I have no husband. Jesus commends her honesty and proceeds to reveal what she already knows. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. Now Jesus, what he's done here, he has opened the door to talk to her about the worship of God. This was his aim all along. Her response is not to change the subject. Her response is in seeking the truth. So when we get to John chapter 4 verses 19 and 20, a lot of people say the woman diverted Jesus from what he had just said and changed the subject, trying to get Jesus' attention off of her sin issue. I don't believe that is at all what's happening here. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you, Jews, say... That in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, it's not Jesus who brings up the subject of worship. It is the woman. And the woman doesn't bring up the subject of worship. I believe she doesn't bring it up because she's trying to divert Jesus from the conversation about her sin. Jesus, whether the woman would have said truly or whether she would have lied to him, Jesus would have told her exactly what she knew. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. She spoke truly. Had she lied, he would have pointed out the truth. and one way or the other, she would have perceived that Jesus is a prophet because who but a prophet could have known her condition? Not just her current condition, but you've had five husbands. Who could have known that? except a prophet of God. So the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she launches right into the theological question that was not just on her mind, but was on the mind of all the Samaritans and all the Jews. One of the reasons why the Jews, the self-righteous Jews, would not go through Samaria Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The interaction with Jesus has caused the woman to perceive that Jesus is not just some Jewish man who happened to be at the well that day. She perceives he is more. She perceives that he is a prophet, not yet realizing that he is so much more than just a prophet. But she'll figure that out here pretty. Then in verse 20, this statement she makes about worship, she, being a Samaritan, knew her ancestors, her fathers, worshipped at Mount Gerizim immediately to the south of Jacob's well. And to the north of Jacob's well was Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal was a little bit taller than Mount Gerizim. And between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim sat Shechem. That's where the city of Shechem was. That's where Jacob's well was. That's where the plot of land that Abraham came to, that Jacob came to, that Joseph eventually inherited. Mount Gerizim had been the site of a temple built following the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon. The temple was modeled after the temple built in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This was the place of worship upon upon Mount Gerizim that the Samaritan woman referred to. The temple, that temple that was built in the mid-5th century, around 450 B.C., that temple was destroyed around 130, 139 B.C. by the Maccabees. But the Samaritans, even though the temple was destroyed... The Samaritans still went to that site, and that's where they worshipped the Lord. Now, there's a reason. We can go back. We're not going to do it today because we don't have time. But if you go back into Deuteronomy, and it's recorded in Joshua as well. Moses was instructed by God. He tells the children of Israel, when you get into the promised land, go to Mount Gerizim and go to Mount Ebal, and take the blessings and the curses that God promises you, recorded in Deuteronomy 28. And have half the tribes stand on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessing. And have the other half of the tribes stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce the curse. And then you Levites are going to be in the middle and you're going to read the curses. And the, and the men standing on Mount Ebal are going to say, Amen. We hear you, Lord. If we do not keep your word, these curses will come upon us. And then read the blessings and those standing on Mount Gerizim will hear the blessings and they'll say, Amen, we hear you, Lord. If we fail to do these things, we will not inherit the blessing. But if we are faithful to love you and to obey you and to keep your commandments, these are the blessings that will come upon us. And so when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, that's exactly what they did. Half the tribe stood on Mount Ebal, half the tribe stood on Mount Gerizim. Now, as time goes on and history moves on, things changed because sin, because Israel was not faithful to God. And the curse, as God promised, came. And exactly what God said would happen, did happen. So Samaritans were descended from the Assyrians who imported their own people to the city and the region of Samaria after the deportation of Israel, the northern kingdom, in the Assyrian invasion around 722 B.C. There's even archaeological records. Uh, we, have a, we have a record. It's, 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 it's chiseled out in stone of the, of the Israelite king bowing before the Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king gives the exact number of people that was deported to Assyria to be put to work for the Assyrian kingdom, 27,290. Now, that's, it's not that only 27,290 were deported. Those were deported and brought and put to work for the king. And he sends an equal amount to Samaria the capital city, and that region, and he fills that region with his Assyrian people. And those Assyrian people intermarry with the Jews that are left there, creating a mixed breed, the Jews called dogs, because they were not purely Jews. They were not purely Gentile. They were a mixed breed, and they had intermarried against God's command. And so the Jews of Judah, the Jews who stayed true to God's word, despised these Samaritans. The kingdom of Israel divided many years prior to this deportation. It divided at the end of Solomon's reign, and from its beginning the northern kingdom did not worship in Jerusalem, even during the first temple period. So when you read in in, in the Kings and in the Chronicles, you'll see that when Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he was given those ten tribes and given that kingdom because he was faithful to God. And God says, you stay faithful, I'm going to bless you, son. Well, Jeroboam, in his insecurity because he was not of the line of David, believed that if he allowed his people to go back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they would eventually leave their allegiance to him and rejoin Judah. And those two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. So he sets up a system of worship on his own. And he fashions two golden calves. Sound familiar? And he sets up a, a place and a system of worship in the northern kingdom. And God, throughout the record of Scripture, talks about the sin of Jeroboam. All those kings that even did everything right and honored God, yet they persisted in the sin of Jeroboam. In other words, they allowed the children of Israel continue to worship improperly. They didn't worship in the right way. They didn't worship in the right place. Their worship was wrong, and God called it sin. He didn't accept it. This is the root. This is the foundation of Samaritan worship on Mount Gerizim. It didn't start with the Gentiles. It started with the Jews. It started with the children of God who rebelled against God and refused to obey God. When the exiles of Judah, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, when they returned from the Babylonian captivity in, in 537 B.C., they were taken captive in 607 B.C. by the Babylonians. Seventy years in captivity, they returned in 537, and they begin to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They begin to rebuild the temple in 537 B.C. That temple, that second temple, is the very temple Jesus was dedicated in. It's the very temple Jesus worshipped in. It was greatly expanded by Herod the Great. This is the temple that Jesus prophesied concerning. It's the temple he's referring to in his conversation with the woman at the well. So the Jews returned to Judah after the Babylonian captivity... To find the Samaritans, the people that had occupied the northern regions, and when all the Jews were carried out of the southern regions, they just all kind of filtered down and started living in their homes and farming their land and and doing all of that, and when the Jews come back from Babylon, they find the Samaritans living in the region, and these Samaritans wanted to be part of the rebuilding of the temple. There's not a temple on Mount Gerizim yet. But they were not allowed to join that effort, and they were rejected by the Jews because the Jews considered the Samaritans foreigners and heathens. So the hatred of the Samaritans, the bitterness between Samaritans and Jews, goes all the way back, centuries The Samaritans, not able to assist in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, take it upon themselves to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim around 450 B.C. And the temple they built on Mount Gerizim is modeled after the temple in Jerusalem. This is the place of worship. This worship upon the mountain. This is why they worshiped upon the mountain. This is why the Samaritan woman refers to that, why Jesus refers to that. Jesus then makes an amazing statement to the woman. John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Remember now, let me remind you what her question in essence was. Where is the right place to worship? Us Samaritans worship on the mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jesus is redefining worship right now with this Samaritan woman. He's redefining the place of worship Not only for the Samaritans, but for the Jews and the whole world. It's why we're here today worshiping the Lord. It's why we are here today worshiping the Lord just as God prescribed in spirit and in truth. Now, we're going to get to what that means. We're not going to get to it today. But if you think there's a lot of misunderstanding about why Jesus was visiting with that woman at the well, there is a whole lot of understanding of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that, those things need to be dispelled. Because it's hindering a lot of people. A lot of people are just like the Samaritan woman. You don't even know what you worship. But you think you do. But you don't. So Jesus here is redefining the place of worship. For everyone, for the whole world, and at this point, only Jesus understood the implications of what he was saying. Something that profound was reserved for, the na- for this nameless Samaritan woman at the very place Father Abraham first came to upon entering the land of Canaan. Think about that. What Jesus is saying to her, he chooses to say to this nameless We don't know her name today. Church tradition tells us what her name is, but we we don't really know. Scripture doesn't tell us what her name is. Abraham built an altar there in worship of God. This is also the place Jacob buys a parcel of land and builds an altar to the Lord, and he calls that altar El Elohi Israel, meaning the Mighty One of Israel. So Jacob... I want you to catch this. Jacob, upon buying his land at Shechem, builds and names an altar there, declaring the Lord to be the Mighty One of Israel. The worship of the Lord, the Mighty One of Israel, was a notice of spiritual warfare for all the other lesser and false gods worshipped in that land. Jacob was claiming the land for the mighty one of Israel. And how did he claim that land? Not with an army. Not with a sword. He built an altar and he worshipped God. And he declared God to be who he is. The mighty one of Israel. This is what we do every time we assemble for worship. We are declaring to the heavenlies. We are declaring to the world. It doesn't matter whether they're listening or not. It doesn't matter if the sinners out in the world are hearing us or not. It doesn't matter what you're feeling inside, whether you get goosebumps or not. It does not matter what you feel. What matters is you are assembled as God's people in spirit and in truth. And our declarations, our prayers, there's a reason why we declare. There's a reason why we have you respond. This is worship that is changing the world. This is worship that is heard, that is known, that is felt in the spiritual realm. But we are so carnal... And we have been so deceived as to what worship is supposed to be, we can't feel it because we are only moved by our flesh and our emotions instead of trusting in God's truth. And realizing, this is why I say worship is not about you. Worship is about what God does through you when you make your declarations, when you make your prayers. We want to believe that worship in spirit and in truth is having this intense emotional desire and feeling. And oh, if I just say my prayers with such feeling, then God's going to hear them. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, the fervent prayer of a righteous man prevails much, but that has nothing to do with your emotion. That has everything to do with God and His Spirit. I got to get a little passion here because it's New Year's Day and you guys stayed up too late last (laughs) night, so I want to wake y'all up. (laughs) This was a notice of spiritual warfare. Those gods are real, we call them demons. But there is a reason why God is called the God of gods the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He's not just the king of earthly realms. He is the king of heavenly and spiritual realms. And there are not just earthly leaders we call kings or presidents or prime ministers. There are spiritual hosts in the heavenlies, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says that the church has been given the authority to speak to those things, to declare the wisdom of God to the powers and to the principalities in heavenly places. That's what our worship does. Our worship is declaring the victory of God and the defeat of our enemies every time the church of God assembles together. Don't you ever believe your worship is not important. Don't you ever believe that gathering here is not important. It is the paramount important thing that you can do as a Christian in terms of spiritual warfare. Just as Abraham and Jacob had done, Jesus was claiming the land and the people for the Lord, the mighty one of Israel, for his father. So we see that Jesus returns to the first place that Abraham and Jacob committed acts of formal worship in the land of promise. Both built altars for worship. Both would have participated in that worship in a corporate manner with their households, with their families, with all that they owned. Jesus is now teaching and informing this Samaritan woman that right worship matters and that her worship is about to change along with everyone else's. John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is showing that worship is important. The importance of our worship cannot be overstated. Our worship is now and always has been warfare. We must know how we are to worship, where we are to worship, and what we are worshiping. This is what Jesus tells the woman, implying the importance of worship. The Samaritans had long-standing traditions of worship. The Jews had even longer-standing traditions. Both believed their form and manner of worship was the right way. They both believed it was biblical. They both went to the Scripture to prove it. Jesus clearly says to the Samaritan woman, though, that her worship is wrong. It's misplaced, for she was worshiping what she did not know. That's what Jesus told her. You don't even know what you worship. The Jews know what they worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And all the Jews went, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm." Even so, Jesus foretells a change that's coming very soon. When the true worshipers will worship the Father, not on a mountain, not in a temple in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. John 4 23 and 24. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and now is. It's coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus tells the woman that very soon the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus makes it plain that the Father is seeking such to worship Him. We need to unpack what that means for us today, for it certainly had significant and life-changing meaning for that woman and for the Samaritans, but it does for us as well, and it certainly did for the Jews who thought that they had the corner on the truth. In his encounter with the woman at the well, Jesus revealed deep truths about worship and about the coming fulfillment of all that could only be foreshadowed or copied in tabernacles and temples and mountains. Now the true had come. And Jesus reveals this to this Samaritan woman. That is so amazing to me. John chapter 4 verses 25 and 26 the woman said to him, after all of this, now remember, she said, I perceive you are a prophet, because she, she had just heard Jesus reveal what Jesus wasn't supposed to know. But he knew her secrets. He knew the depths of the secrets she held in her heart, and he revealed them to her, and she said, I perceive you're a prophet. Now he begins to talk to her about worship, true worship, no doubt, and tells her your worship is wrong. You don't even know what you're worshiping. And the woman said to him, "I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am he." Who man? We can't even begin to grasp the heaviness of that moment, the revelation that God dumped onto that woman. The Samaritan woman no doubt understood, though in small part, the implication of the things that Jesus is telling her. She had already perceived he was a prophet, Now she brings up the coming Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. In other words, man, you've just created a lot of questions for me. Uh, And I know you're a prophet, but you know when the Messiah comes, uh, he's going to tell us what's really right. You say I'm wrong. You say the Jews are right. Mm, The Messiah, he'll, he'll, he'll let us know. What does that tell us? She was looking for her Messiah. And she found him. And she didn't have to wait. He was waiting for her. And she didn't even know it. In other words, the woman was saying that only the Messiah could fully and rightly explain and reveal such mysteries about our worship and about everything when he comes. If Jesus had not already Blown the mind of the woman at the well, he gives to her the greatest revelation yet. Upon her mention of the Messiah, he says to her, I am, I who speak to you am He. Jesus, the Messiah, has broken the paradigm of worship for this Samaritan woman. He's broken all the paradigms for her because the Messiah she had been looking for, little did she know. Think about it. She gets up that morning. She plans to do what she does, whatever her day was to go get water, just like you go get water, go to the water jug, and you fill all your jugs up when your water pots are empty. Her water pots needed filling, and so she goes to the very place she goes to on a regular basis to get water with no clue who she's going to meet that day. A Jew. Not just a Jew, but maybe a prophet. Not just a prophet, But the Messiah she's been looking for and waiting for, for years, that her people have been looking for and waiting for, and even the Jews are looking for and waiting for, who would have ever dreamed that that Messiah would have been sitting and waiting at that well that day for that Samaritan woman in Samaria, not in Jerusalem, in Samaria, but there he was. And in being there and in speaking those things to this woman, he... He broke all of her paradigms. He broke them. He shattered them. Everything she thought she knew, shattered. Everything she thought was true, shattered. And you know what? God wants to do the same for us. Because we have a lot of paradigms. We have a lot of strongholds up here in our minds that are wrong. They're not... They're not built and fortified with the Scripture. They're built and fortified with our vain imaginations. They're built and fortified with what other men and other people and other teachers who teach erroneously perhaps say when we should be the ones going to Scripture ourselves and letting the Holy Spirit teach us and lead us and guide us. And allowing the Scripture to be the best interpretation of the Scripture. this is what I want to have happen. I want God to break down the paradigms that we have that need to be broken. So he broke down those things that she had erected in her own mind, in her own heart, about God, about worship. And God will do the same for us still today. May we be a people committed to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, as part of our worship each week, God graces us. He gives us the privilege to come to His table to remind us of the covenant He has established with us through the blood, through the body of His Son, So as you, as you seek to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, as you may be thinking about all the things you don't understand that you wish you did understand, don't worry about those things. Just know that God is graceful and God in his way and in his time, just like he did with the Samaritan woman. Revealed to her the very truth she needed to know and wanted to know. So Christian, trust in Jesus. Come to this table and allow this bread and this wine, this body and this blood to renew the covenant with you as we worship him today in spirit and in truth. Let us stand, and I will give you your charge today. I want you to know to the depths of your being that your worship, our worship, matters. It matters greatly. I will venture to say that it matters much more than you and I realize. Worship is personal. But worship in the history of God's people is intensely corporate. We cannot substitute intense personal times of worship for the corporate worship God commands for His people. He commands it for a reason. Over the course of the next weeks, we will look at some of those reasons God commands. We worship Him corporately in spirit and in truth. We will see that worship in spirit and truth means much more than having a right attitude, a right posture, or sincerity of heart in our worship. All God's people have had that throughout the ages. Worship in spirit and truth speaks directly to where and how and what we are to know in our worship. As we begin to unpack these important truths about worship, I charge you and I challenge you to commit corporate worship, commit to Christ and His body, commit to do your part in the corporate worship of His church, and so commit to the corporate spiritual warfare conducted each time we assemble to worship. Therefore, make your focus and your commitment about what is taking place through your worship instead of what you are receiving in your worship. If you do this, you will receive far more than you could ever have imagined. It is through our worship that we will change and transform the world. Let us commit to it. Happy New Year. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.